Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, host of Crooked Media's With Friends Like These. But today, I am here to bring you a crooked conversation. And the conversation is with Reza Aslan, whose name you may recognize from several best-selling books about religion and spirituality, including Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. It's a good time to be thinking about such things. And Reza, as usual, brings his very unique take on religious history uh, to his new book, God, A Human History. We implant our our society, our politics, even our own bureaucracies um, upon the realm of the gods so that the earth becomes a reflection of heaven in the same way that God is just a reflection of ourselves. He sort of educates us about how we have understood God in the past and how we may come to understand God today and maybe understand ourselves a little bit more too. So, Rez Aslan. Hey there. Hey. Yeah, so we, we've chatted in the past. We have. It, it seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> <laughs> it was in the era. It was the PT. It's like dog years. It's Trump years. Yeah. You've said that this is your most personal book. It is. Yeah, ever. it's definitely. I mean, it's it's. it's quite different than any book I've ever written. Most of the books that I write are about religion, um, about religion history, um, about religious figures, or, you know, the interplay of religion and violence or religion and politics. This is the first book that that I've ever written that's about faith. Um, What is it? Where does it come from? Um, How does it express itself? How far back in time can you say that such a thing as religious faith existed? you know, what do we do about it? I mean, th- those are questions that, you know, I I ask myself a lot and I do talk about them, but but I usually when I write, I try to my hardest to to make a distinction between religion and faith and just say, look, faith is a a personal, individualistic, mysterious, uh a- an emotional thing. And I'm not here to talk about that stuff. I'm here to talk about religion and uh, its role in the world, etc. But yeah, this is this is definitely different. And it, it is, to be fair, it is a lot about religion too, because it's a history of religions as they express a kind of faith. I, yeah. This is the way yeah. to put it. Though, you know, what we call religion, um, by which we mean a kind of institutionalized, hierarchical, um organized uh, expression, communal uh, expression of communal faith. Um, That's a pretty new thing. You know, I mean, I suppose if you're just looking at the material evidence available to us, um, you know, maybe 14, 15, 16,000 years old, uh, this book traces the religious impulse, the, the thing in our brain that makes us think that there is more be in this world than just the material realm, that that impulse that leads to religion um, back to before our species, Homo sapiens, even existed. Yeah, I believe you, you basically go back to the Big Bang. 
Um, Back to the beginning. <laughs> and, and what you talk about is this uh, impulse that you center or you you cite work that centers this impulse actually in our, our brains, in our neurochemistry, uh, that we yeah. perceive other things to be somewhat like us, which is a kind of leap of faith in a way. Like yeah. we imbue other things that are not human with human in human terms. In human yeah. terms. Yeah, that's a perfect way of putting it. Um, first of all, you know, this idea that the religious impulse exists in the brain um, is not that uh, big or consequential of a thing. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes, particularly among um, critics of religion and most, most especially among some of the new atheists, mm-hmm. um, uh, thinkers and writers out there, the idea that the religious impulse is a neurological phenomenon or that the experience of faith um, is the result of electrochemical reactions in the brain somehow delegitimizes or, or um, devalues the impulse. And that doesn't make any sense to me at all. I mean, of course we know the neural mechanics whereby faith is ex- experienced in the brain. We know the neural mechanics whereby love is experienced in the brain. That doesn't make the experience any less real or any less legitimate. I mean, every experience without exception is a result of electrochemical reactions in the brain. So why would faith be any different? But I do think that that knowledge that whatever it is that we are experiencing and however you want to define it is happening inside of our brains tells us something very important, which is the way that we express that emotion called faith. And I do think faith is really, it is fundamentally an emotion. The way that we express that um, is through the lens of ourselves. We use ourselves as the lens to understand the universe, to understand our place in the world, and most specifically to understand, to make sense of, to conceive of the divine, whether we think of that in terms of many gods or a single god or, or what have you. And and I will let people know, this is a fairly, um, it is not a super lengthy book. But it is dense. Originally, what I had intended on writing was basically a popular history of religions book. You know, mm-hmm. this kind of mammoth 500-page tome um, that is a more accessible version of the kinds of books that, you know, we read in in the academic study of religion. And but what I wanted to do is so often those kinds of books start with the creation of institutional religions. And what I wanted to do was go back a little bit further. And so I start, you know, deep, deep in our ancient evolutionary past, even before um, Homo sapiens mm-hmm. existed as a species. And as I started in on those early chapters, and as I started really delving into these cognitive theories about um, the religious impulse, what I discovered very early on was this kind of, well, it's, it's sort of like a cognitive blip that we have, this, this unconscious, innate compulsion to define the the gods or God or the divine or the other or however you want to refer to it um, as just basically a reflection of ourselves. And I started delving into some of the psychological work that's also done on, on the way that religion and religious ideas work. 
And very quickly, what I found was that whether you believe in God or not, whether you're aware of it or not, that all of us, all of us, when we are forced to think about God, when we're forced to conceive of God or describe God, we all do the same thing. We begin to essentially describe a divine version of ourselves, a superhuman being who has our emotions, our motivations, our personality, even our bodies, but who doesn't have our limitations. And that then the book suddenly changed. The book became not just um, a history of religion, but it became a history of this one particular way in which we have always thought about God, regardless of where we're from, what religion we're from, where in the world we're from, or where in time we're from. This one particular way that we have always thought about God and why that's such a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You do make an argument in this book that we need that that we humans should reconceptualize our notions of the divine. And I want to get to that. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea that you call politicomorphism, I believe. Yeah. That's not my term. It's a it's a it's a term that was um, coined uh, about sixty years ago. But political morphism, it basically imagine what I just said: this unconscious, innate impulse that we all have to conceive of God, not just in human terms, but as a re- divine reflection of ourselves. We do the exact same thing when it comes to our conceptions of the heavenly realm. We. We, con- we conceive of the realm of the gods, heaven, the afterlife, however you want to term it, as essentially a divine reflection of the earth in which we live. And I mean that in very sort of specific and deliberate ways. We, we implant our, our society, our politics, even our own bureaucracies um, upon the realm of the gods so that the earth becomes a reflection of heaven in the same way that God is just a reflection of ourselves. And you you look very specifically at how different at different points of our civilization or you know human development, uh, people have conceived of heavens as a reflection of the society that they just formed or they've they've now formed. So a uh, hunter-gatherer society has this kind of since it is basically egalitarian. <laughs> it is. And 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 basically and and very mobile and also very in touch with the natural world because they have to be, right? Exactly. Uh they conceive of a heavenly world as being well they don't really, it's not even a heavenly world. Like they're they are in touch with nature. It's the, it's the right. it's the god of the beasts, I believe, is what you say. That's yeah, their the lord god, of the beasts, the lord yeah. of the beasts, and it's a um, it's an animism of sorts, right? Like that there is spirit in everything. If we want to think about stereotypical kind of Native American beliefs, um, that sort of uh, we are all connected, and uh, spirit flows in and out of us, and and our rituals are about um, being connected to this thing that runs through all of us. Right. That that's a great expression of what we would say is the earliest form of spiritual expression animism and and you described it perfectly that that there is a sort of a singular universal spirit that runs through all things and animates all things and then connects us all in those terms absolutely perfectly so so it's a it's it's a egalitarian kind of spiritual spirituality it's an egalitarian view of the natural world that all things are kind of connected and equal that's right. Uh, and then our next step in human development is perhaps 
Uh, some people might consider it ironic because it is considered the next step is considered progress. <laughs> right. <laughs> is when we start to form, uh, you know, uh, agri- agrar- agrarian cities. Yeah. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm so glad that you put it in that funny term because, I, look, I mean, this this was actually one of the most surprising things for me when I researched this book because I did not know this stuff. I, like I would say, almost everybody um, just assumed that the agricultural revolution was a good thing. I mean, heck, we call it the agricultural revolution, right? right. It's, that sounds like you're, you know, throwing over a bad thing and instituting a good exactly. thing. Exactly. And logically speaking, I mean, if you're like, hey, do you think it's better to go around hunting for your food and and gathering, you know, wild plants? Or do you think it's better to grow your own food and domesticate animals? We just naturally assume that, you know, the latter is the proper way. But over the last decade and a half or so, two decades, um, there have there have been these numerous studies showing what an absolute disaster the agricultural revolution was for human beings. I mean, not only did it result in far less food and far fewer calories, it also resulted in a whole wave of brand new diseases and human ailments that just simply never existed when we were hunter-gatherers. Um, you know, the Israeli historian um, uh, Yuval Hariri has this great line where he says the agricultural revolution was sort of humanity's greatest scam, right? It, just, <laughs> it was just a bad bet on the part of human beings. And so that has now made us start to think, well, then why did we do it? Well, I mean, why, was, why did we actually do this thing? And one of the the sort of very interesting theories about why we started planting um, has to do with the institutionalization of religion. Mm-hmm. And just to take us back a, a little bit, because this is such a cool and interesting point, um, basically the, the timeline that we always envisioned, what we learned in school, was that we spent – you know, a couple of hundred thousand years or so wandering and hunting and gathering. And then we started planting and domesticating animals. And because we were planting and domesticating animals, we had to settle down. And so we stopped wandering. And by settling down, we created um, civilization. We created villages and cities. And that eventually led to temples and bureaucracies and basically civilization as we know it. And I want to insert something that, that that's counter the counterintuitive notion here, which is I think a lot of people probably learned in school that it was um, becoming agrarian societies that gave us leisure time. But <laughs> <Right>. really, <laughs> it's the exact opposite. I mean, you we know, we had less yeah. time to ponder our, our own, you know, mortality. We had less time to make art. Uh, that actually hunter and gatherers spent less time gathering the calories that they needed, right? Far less time. And yeah. by the way, it's just a dumb idea. I mean, look, <laughs> if you're if you're a hunter, okay, um, you there are animals everywhere. You can just hunt them, kill them, bring them back to camp, eat them. It's fantastic. Let's say if one species of animal starts to thin out, well, then you just hunt a different species of animal. If you are domesticating animals, if you're penning animals for easy slaughter and one of those animals gets sick, all the animals get sick, they all die, you die. Mm-hmm. If you're a gatherer, you go around, you pick you know, wild stalks of barley and wild stalks of wheat and do whatever you want with it. It's everywhere around you. It's not a big deal. If you're a farmer, forget about the fact that you just spent most of the water that keeps you alive 
trying to grow these crops and that you're you're staying up all night keeping them, you know, free from disease and animals and thieves. But even then, if there's a drought, if anything goes wrong, your crops die, you die. Uh, it's just a terrible idea. <laughs> it's a terrible altogether. way to do business. It's just, yeah. it just, it doesn't make any sense. But the theory that you lay out in the book that is becoming, I guess, people are gathering more evidence for it, is that the reason we made this switch, it isn't that we made the switch and then developed organized um, rituals and religions. It's that the religion and and rituals that we had as hunter gatherers started to require us to stay in one place to, to practice place. them. Yeah, that's perfectly said. So the archaeological... I feel like such a good student. Like, I I'm know, you like, really... Yeah. You're, you, you should, <laughs> I should interview you. Um, the, look, the evidence that we have now is that we know that human beings settled in big, um, stable... Uh, villages and built these grand societies with great works of art and temples and buildings long before it occurred to us to actually start planting seeds Mm -hmm. for thousands of years, in fact, before we thought, hey, we should actually start penning animals. Um, And so, yes, you said it perfectly that sort of one of these very interesting um, prevailing theories now is that the desire to create spaces in which the gods could dwell um in you know in, in which you could actually have religious rituals take place in a permanent fashion in other words what we would say is the building of a temple the building of temples mm-hmm. um and the institutionalization of religion is what forced us to come up with alternative means of feeding what were becoming increasingly settled societies. And so we started planting some of the the seeds that we would normally just go and pick. Um, We started gathering animals instead of killing them in the wild. We started gathering them so that we could slaughter them and feed the people who were working on the temples, the people who were worshiping near the temples. And that eventually, as bad an idea as this was, it became this sort of necessity that we just kept doing and doing and doing for religious reasons until finally— Or or I just want to put it, because I think it's funny, or for kind of bureaucratic reasons. Like basically— Yes. (laughs) Like basically, like you can imagine it this way. Like so at first you're the hunter-gatherers and your shrines are just um, objects that you carry. Right? Yeah, you carry your exactly. You carry your gods with you. you carry That's gods the best with you. way then, to think about it. Then you know someone's like, "Hey, I'm going to put everything in a cool box," right? And <laughs> right. then people are like, "Oh my god, that box is so cool! Let's make a bigger box. Let's make a bigger and box, bigger let's box, keep, and then keep finally, the box in place." Right. It, it uh, starts to become let's make a let's let's build something around the box, and your buildings get more and more complex, and the number of people required to put them together becomes more complex. I'm guessing you develop a hierarchy of people to build them because you can't have everyone being equal if you're going to build something that's complicated. Right. A hierarchy to to build them, but also a hierarchy to actually care for the gods. Right. That Well, it it all happens kind of symbiotically, right? Right. You can't build a big, complicated structure with everyone being a boss. You have to kind of have some layers of management. Um, and you can't if your if your gods become a little more complicated and differentiated. You also have to have a hierarchy there. And then guess what heaven starts to look like? <laughs> exactly like the society that you <laughs> built. It's a hierarchical heaven instead of 
the more sort of egalitarian idea. It's not that we all share a singular universal soul in equal amounts, whether we are human beings or whether we are trees or the earth. Instead, now it's, well, we are literally terraforming the earth. So we are now the gods of the earth. We are not part of nature. We're above nature. We are lords of the na- of nature. And the same thing starts to happen in our conception of the other realm. The gods are not just sort of these divine aspects of the natural forces, none of whom are, you know, in charge of any other, all of whom are sort of equal, all of whom are necessary and useful. Now the gods start to uh, create a, a heavenly society that looks a lot like the earthly society. There's a God who's in charge. Mm-hmm. And there are gods who are underneath that God. Everybody has a very specific function uh, in heaven. Um, you know, everybody answers to an authority. Um, yep, it's what we do. It's yep. called political morphism. We we create the heavens as a reflection of the earth. And I want to want to take us fairly quickly up through the most modern one, because then I think it's really important to talk about your where you end up too. Um, so we go from uh, animism to a hierarchical gods to wait to animism to many gods to a hierarchy mm-hmm. of gods, and then there's sort of this weird half step backwards where it becomes uh, monotheism, right? Is that the next step? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. so there's a step before monotheism, and that's monolatry. Right. 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 And monolatry is just a fancy word for. Um, There's one God who's the highest of all gods, the greatest of all gods, and the only God I worship. But of course, there are other gods. Right, right. They're just not as great as my God. Right. Um, And it turns out this is in the Bible, which is something that we, I'll just mention so that people have a reason to read the book, because it's fascinating (laughs) that early Christianity was actually monolatric and not. Early Christianity was, and basically Almost all of Judaism, I mean, basically almost the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, what we refer to derogatorily as the Old Testament, almost all of the Hebrew scriptures um, represent monolatry, not monotheism. Abraham was not a monotheist. He practiced monolatry. Moses was not a monotheist. Um, These, both of these men believed that their God, and just a little teaser here, they had completely different gods. Abraham's <laughs> god was a Canaanite deity called El, and that made sense since Abraham spent his entire life in Canaan. Moses' god was a, a sort of a, an Egyptian deity, a Midianite deity by the name of Yahweh, which makes sense because Moses was Egyptian. But regardless, <laughs> both of them believed that their god was the highest god, the best god, the most powerful god. But that clearly there were other gods. And in fact, you know, those other gods are mentioned a lot in the Hebrew scriptures. And we even know that in the first temple in Jerusalem, um, many of these gods were actually housed there alongside Yahweh. Um, That what we call monotheism, this idea that there is only one God and no other God in the universe, that's a very new idea. It's barely 2,500 years old. And so that in and of itself, I think, is extraordinary that if, that if you know, as I lay out in the book, that if you can take 
human spirituality back hundreds of thousands of years to even before the existence of Homo sapiens, that during those hundreds of thousands of years, the idea that there's only one God is barely 2,500 years old um, is extraordinary. And I also want to, we can't lose sight of, because I do think it's really important to, to, to actually a conversation about today's politics is, is this politicomorphism. Uh, mm-hmm. And from what I gather, the monolatry also, that's a reflection of a kind of tribal multi-state society. Right. Right. Like you have many kings and you have, you have so, many kings. Yeah. So, so you have many each, gods. Each, each society has its own king and each society has its own god. And just like your king rules over you, your God rules over you. Your God couldn't care less about the neighboring tribe. Right. Right. They have their own king. They have their own God. It doesn't matter because they're not as good as us anyway. Um, that's right. And, and then monotheism sort of reflects the rise of empire, basically. Yeah. Well, what it does is this kind of conception of singularity, right? right. That there is that is one universal ruler over all people, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their tribe, regardless of where they live, that preps the mind for the idea of a one singular deity who rules all of the universe. You know, before that, it was a it was a very difficult construct. It was very it was very hard for the ancient mind to accept the idea that there would be only one God because it doesn't make any sense. Like, why? Why would there be only one God? Why would one God be responsible for both good and evil? Why would one God be responsible for the sun and the moon, for love and war? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It just makes much more sense that there would be a God for each one of our attributes, each one of our emotions, each one of the forces of nature. Um, And so whenever somebody throughout history stood up and suggested that there was one God, it was always rejected, sometimes violently so, until it finally took hold among the Israelites during the Babylonian captivity in 586 BC. I would actually argue, you do not argue this, but there is an argument perhaps that one could make that is monotheism requires violence. (laughs) Like it requires um, some kind of force to keep people adhering to this one religion like people don't naturally and i say this as someone who is a monotheist myself i think there are other other methods for for evangelism but there's you you see with the rise of monotheism also the rise of religious warfare i couldn't agree with you more i mean look monotheism is also monomythic in that if you believe that there is only one god you very likely believe that there is only one truth that there's only one path to that God. And so what that means is that all other paths, all other truths are not only false, but they're anti-God, right? Mm -hmm. They're demonic. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's true that monotheism in presenting this kind of sense of utter absolutism almost necessarily leads to conflict or violence. But you're saying something even more important, which is to maintain belief in monotheism requires force and violence. And his history proves that correct. The first person to ever say, at least in recorded history, to ever say that there's only one God and no other um, was famously the, the heretic pharaoh Akhenaten. Um, of the um, 18th dynasty, uh, the new kingdom of, of Egypt. Um, and, you know, his revolution didn't last, but, you know, as soon as he died, his religion died with him. But the only reason that his religion even worked is because he just went around killing people who disagreed with him because he was the pharaoh. <laughs> the second person, 
The second person in recorded history to say that there's only one God and no other was an Iranian prophet by the name of Zarathustra, who said it in about Thus 1100. Thus Zarathustra is my only reference for that, but let's see, <laughs> we'll see if we can put that music under the, underneath this at some point. Yeah, let's get that in there. Yeah. Um, Zarathustra was, a you know, this sort of very famous Iranian uh, uh, prophet. <laughs> yes, the uh, famous Iranian prophet. Who hasn't heard? <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I just want to <laughs> repeatedly say that he was Iranian. I just want to mention that yeah, I'm, one I'm, more I'm time. I'm picking up some Iranian pride here. Yes, I'm just okay. saying. I'm just saying. It's just a fact. Um, so, but, yes, but, but he was also a monotheist who met with resistance. That's right. To that's right. He said the same thing, that there's yeah. no other god except his one god. He, he called his god Mazda. Um, and, uh, but unlike Akhenaten, Zarathustra wasn't a pharaoh. <laughs> he didn't have an army. And so no one followed his religion. I mean, it's really hilarious because by the time he died, he had maybe a dozen followers <laughs> or so. Um, now, what's what's very interesting about the religion that he started, Zoroastrianism, is that hundreds of years after his death, it, it started up again, um, but in a different version. Adapted a, for the times, as it exactly, were. Exactly, yeah. The, it, it, became, it became a dualistic religion, right. not a monotheistic religion. But again, it goes back to what you were saying, is that, you know, people— People have to be almost forced into believing this idea of one God, one truth, one path. Um, they have to be compelled to do so because the mind doesn't necessarily work that way. And I, I want to point out, people are probably thinking to themselves, but well, here we are living in a time of of monotheism. Yep. You know, here we are living in a Christian time, Jewish time, uh, Jewish time, uh, Muslim time, whatever. All the great world religions happen to be monotheistic. And I would just point out, as you you probably would, we are at the blink of an eye, historically speaking. The blink of an eye. Like this 2,000 years could <laughs> could go away real quickly, like yeah. <laughs> could be wiped out pretty totally under the right circumstances. Well, I think we're under those circumstances right yes. now, but that's a different conversation. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, you know what? Maybe that's sort of where I wanted to go, is All that right. we are in an unsustainable moment, right? Like oh, that, most that we, definitely. And even... In what you are seeing in uh, these religions that are uh, nominally, literally nominally monotheistic, the rise of certain kinds of interpretations which lend themselves to a more, and like the verbiage people use now is like spiritual, not religious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mystical interpretations. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, look, we're 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 coming full circle in yeah. a way. Um, monotheism, this idea in in one God, one truth, um, is a new idea. It's a very new idea. It does require not just a a cognitive shift in the way that we think about ourselves and about the universe, but it does require um, some kind of enforcement mechanism. And that enforcement mechanism doesn't necessarily have to be violence. It can be um, this sort of the, the moral uh, equivalent to it, which yeah. is you're going to burn in hell for all of eternity if you don't believe what I believe. Right. Um, and I want to put him, I want to stop you there because I think this is really important because it's it's something I thought about when I was reading, you know, your book about monotheism requiring some kind of enforcement, mm-hmm. um, which is that it also in its reflection of a society and saying there's only one truth, only, you know, one way it elevates a certain kind of person to divinity, right? 
You yeah. create castes, you create races, you create unequal genders, you create two genders. You you say that only one kind of person is the best kind of person. Like monotheism kind nope. of fits in with a way of thinking that is about, you know, patriarchy, white supremacy. That's right. Like all these things that we are coming to learn to see um, are kinds of reflections of the same way of thinking about God. Yep. And it, it's back to the thesis, right? So yeah. now, now that you are, you know, um, cognitively moving towards the idea of a singular God, you are still creating that God in your complete image with all of your contradictions, all of your paradoxes, all of your biases, all of your bigotries. You are creating a singular God, an all-powerful universal God who looks and acts and thinks and feels just like you do. Well, like in a certain way, like if you say, um, if you say God, if you're if you're a white person, you're going to say God is white. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, and if you're straight, male person, you're going to say God is a straight male person. Uh, and you're going to judge every other kind of person as being not quite as divine, That's not right. quite as accessible. Because, you're, because ultimately what you're doing is divinizing yourself. Right. Exactly. And then building a, a religion and a society based on that idea. And this is why I think, you know, uh, unlike most of the other books that, I, that I've written, this one is a very personal book because I do end with this kind of full-throated um, defense and argument for a different way of thinking about God, a more pantheistic way of thinking about God, which, by the way, as we were saying earlier in our conversation, is not just more in tune with um, the way that we have throughout most of human existence thought about God before we started building these temples and creating these religions. Um God as the animating force of the universe, that God as the underlying creative energy, um, that that not only is it more in tune with, with that way, but I think it's more um, proper for the world in which we live in today. You had mentioned just a few minutes ago the— you know, the rise of the nons, uh, uh, a conversation that, um, you know, religion nerds like you and I talk about all the time. Um, this idea that the fastest growing movement, um, certainly in American religiosity, is the, the non-affiliated, those who uh, do not call themselves atheists or even agnostics, but who also refuse to um, acknowledge any kind of religious identification. They are, as you, I think, said, um, spiritual but not religious. Yeah. And I think, you know, this kind of pantheist, this new way of thinking about God, this pantheistic way of thinking about God um, serves those people who are looking for a way to, you know, to, to have a, a connection with with the other realm, the, a connection with the divine, but who don't want to do it. Uh, you know, uh, with with these sort of religious labels that come with all this cultural and political and social baggage. Right. And also, I mean, I I do think that no matter what religion you practice, at least the religions that I'm familiar with, there is a way of thinking about the world that does not fall into the tr the hegemonic traps of monotheism or the way of thinking about God that doesn't fall into those traps. Right. Yeah. Um, like I personally am a Christian, uh, but I also believe that God is a mystery, you know, mm -hmm. um, that, that my, and that my way of viewing God is but a way of viewing God and that I'm not going to, 
you know, and, and I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because I the one thing that you do leave out of the book is the way that religion does and doesn't like govern human interactions, you mm-hmm. know, because like I feel like you said, I think faith is an emotion earlier. Like for me, faith is an action. Love is an action. Like I show my faith and show my love by the way right. I treat others. And that is what is more important. And that is also what I believe that Jesus teaches me that how I feel about other people actually just really isn't that important. <laughs> you know, as, as, the, as the conservatives, like you say, like facts don't care about your feelings, you know, fuck your feelings. But that's, all, that's kind of true. Like I am supposed to be of service to others, no matter what, no matter what I think of them, no matter what I feel about them. Like that is the message that I get. Um, and I'm, that, I'm, that I am a conduit of grace, you know. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you said it perfectly, right, that this idea is not, first of all, new or unique. It exists in all religious traditions, um, usually the more mystically um, minded branches of, mm-hmm. of religions. Um, but it exists in all religions, East and West. Um, it exists, as we, as I said earlier, throughout human history. It's sort of the first way of us thinking in quote-unquote religious terms is the these more sort of pantheistic ways, uh, the pantheistic ideas of God. And it exists in, you know, philosophy. It exists in science, this idea of monism or or the the unity of, of creation. I mean, these are sort of the fundamental ways in which we understand the workings of the universe, be it in theological terms or in non-theological terms. Um, and so, in a sense, for me, this idea that, you know, the underlying reality is that all is one and that one is all. Um, for me, the one is what I call God. It's how I understand God. And so going back to what you just said about the way in which we, we relate to each other as human beings, you know, as a, as a pantheist, I mean, I came to pantheism from Islam and from Sufism, uh, which is a pantheistic religion. But as I just said, pantheism exists in, in all religious traditions. As a pantheist, if I... If I understand that all things are God, then I move through the world. I move through my relationships with people, my encounters with people, as though what I am encountering is God and is what is divine. It, you know, it makes it impossible for me to to delegitimize or dehumanize uh, people because they're God. It makes it impossible for me to to exploit or abuse um, nature. Uh, because it's God, and so my as a as a person of faith, that's how I express my faith. That's how I live it in action, as you just said so mm-hmm. so very well. And that is something that's available to people in the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition. I mean, yep. you you talk about it specifically, but like that is sort of the the Christianity that I have come to believe is the same idea that like, and it's in the Bible too. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible, but <laughs> <laughs> you can pick and choose. But that uh, begins though, Anna. It begins by. Um, sort of creating this this cognitive effort mm-hmm. to strip God of some kind of personality, right? To I, I use the term dehumanize God, but what I mean by that is to take away um, the sort of human attributes and emotions that you have of God. Right. Because when you create God as just a, a reflection of yourself— then what you are essentially doing is creating a projection of your own um, biases, your own prejudices, your own worldview 
um, you're divinizing yourself in that in that you're divinizing your personality mm-hmm. in that regard. And I think that's where the kinds of religious bigotries that we see, the religious conflicts that we see, that's where that is is ultimately from. Whereas if you do have this much more expansive idea of God, um, then it becomes very difficult to sort of think of God in these tribal terms, which gets us in so much trouble all the time. And also, you don't privilege your religion over another person's. Exactly. Because um, you're able, like, I, the metaphor I always use when I'm talking to people is that personally, you actually come up with a very similar metaphor, which which tickled me, which is that, like, so personally, I believe in the divine spirit that is all around us as being like light. You know, it is mm. it, it is all around us. It suffuses everything. It is um, it is wonderful to be uh, exposed to. It is it is joyous. It is life. It is light. You can choose to put a stained glass window up also, right? Like you right. can choose to frame this light in a way that is specially pleasing to you. Um, and whatever that one window looks like is great. It's still light. Some people don't like windows. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some people really just want to be like, no, light is awesome. Um, and other people really like, uh, you know, very structured, you know, detailed windows that have lots of like things to observe and to, you know, uh, fit yourself into. Um, but it's all basically looking it's at all the light. same thing. It's all light. It's all, yeah. it's all there. And we all can share it and, 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 you know, rejoice in it if we so choose. Um, I was going to ask you, and maybe this is a good way to, to, to wrap up, um, you know, throughout the book, you do this very interesting trick of comparing the religion of the time with the, with the society and politics of the time. We all, we both just said this, and this is true, that we're living in the blink of an eye right now in in the moment of Christianity and uh, other monotheistic religions being the dominant religions in the world. But what do you see in our modern culture, specifically maybe American modern culture? What is the political morphism happening here now? You know, I so uh, about halfway through the book, I talk about what happened in ancient Greece. Right. Um, What's really fascinating about the Greek religious system um, and the way it sort of collapsed in on itself is that this unconscious impulse that we have had from the very beginning to humanize the gods, to think of the gods as looking like us, as acting like us, becomes perfectly actualized in in the Greek religious system. And it becomes perfectly actualized because of the enormous talent of the Greek artists and and thinkers, right? When when Homer starts to write about the gods, he writes about them in such incredible three-dimensional terms that it becomes impossible to see the difference between them as divine and as human beings. Really, the only difference is that they have superpowers. That's it. Mm. But they act and feel and think and are motivated by human emotions. They essentially function as one gigantic dysfunctional family living on Mount Olympus, and they have the exact same problems that you do, and they deal with the same struggles, and they have the same desires that you have. They are eminently human in in the poems of Homer and Hesiod and, and the great Greek writers. And at the same time, These enormous technological advances and and sculpting that the Greeks perfect, you have these spectacular images of the gods who are just basically a very handsome or a gorgeous man or woman. And not just a man or woman, 
but an ethnically Greek man or woman. And something about that, something about this sort of the explicit uh, unavoidable humanization of the gods is what gives birth to the very concept of atheism as we know it, right? Mm. A, a concept that really starts in ancient Greek. And it starts with these philosophers, these thinkers saying to themselves, this can't be right. <laughs> you know, th- this cannot be. If there is a God, it, he can't be this maudlin and absurd and embarrassing and immoral. There's no possibility that if there is a God that he looks exactly like some fishmonger from Crete. Like that can't be correct. And I truly feel like we're in a moment like that right now. Mm-hmm. When we are watching religious people use religion to justify the most grotesque ideas, right? When we have pastors saying, hey, child molestation is not a big deal. After all, you know, Mary mm-hmm. was a teenager when Joseph married her. I think that most people, you know, Although very importantly, he didn't have sex with her. That's the whole point of that story. But you know, it, And it, by the way, there is nothing <laughs> anywhere ever, ever written that says Mary was a teenager. That's just something that he saw in a Christmas play somewhere. Right, right. You know, um, you know, again, like read your Bible. Stop talking about your Bible and read your Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I you're agree. Right. So people are seeing people are seeing uh, religious people. And let's be very specific about this. Right. They're seeing people who claim to be interpreting the divine um, act in ways that are um, immoral or distasteful or unpleasant or, um, you know, somehow. uh disturbing to us. Well, look, religious people have always acted immoral and unpleasant and disturbing. I think the difference is is that in those in those kinds of comments what we're seeing is almost like the veil being pulled away. It's very easy to say, "Wait a second, you're not making a religious argument. You're just trying to come up with a reason to support a political candidate." Right. Like that is right. political morphism in its extreme form. And so religious or not, it's so obvious what is being done there. It's not just immoral behavior from a religious person, okay? That's just called Tuesday. Um, <laughs> what is what is happening is just this rank, explicit understanding that, that you know, people who haven't even read my book <laughs> can uh-huh. look at and say, wait a second, you're describing yourself. Right. You're not describing your God. You're describing yourself, which is exactly what happened in ancient Greek. Right. So uh, in a weird way, it's actually because there's these religious people, they are actually not, um, they're behaving in gross ways, which, yes, religious people who of all stripes have done all the time. But that used to be sort of almost in the service of perpetuating the religion itself. Like it was it was about. Correct. Um, you know, sustaining the same belief system. And now this is at least we are seeing in this very specific moment in the Roy Moore <laughs> race in Alabama, <laughs> people actively perverting what they say is their religion to interfere in the, you know, our political world. Precisely. And I think that when you go back and you look at the the sort of the conversations that are being had, the studies that are being had with regard to the rise of the non-affiliated in America, it is very clear that how how intimately connected that is to um, the the political situation in America, the marriage particularly of evangelical Christianity and the Republican Party um, closely parallels the the rise of the non-affiliated. And I think that if you were to ask me, what does that say for the future of religion? 
I think that's what you're seeing is that more and more and more and more people are going to um, sort of issue certain um, easy to to identify religious labels and more and more are going to look to other alternative ways, other alternative metaphors to express um, what is a universal impulse towards religious faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I I have a bias towards trying to end on a hopeful note. Um, and uh, I feel like there is hope here, right? Um, for sure. There is a, a potential for what we see as this nadir of, of behavior, of the intersection of religion and politics being an opportunity for people to, to in a way, return to this more primal view of the divine and I mean, more that's, accessible yep, view. That's the whole, that's the whole, you just basically concluded my book. That's oh. exactly right. Oh. right. It's that, it's that, you know, going back, reverting to this original conception of the divine, a conception of the divine that I truly believe the evidence indicates is embedded in our very consciousness and the very cognitive processes that we possess. Um, that that will lead us towards a more f- fruitful, a more prosperous, a more peaceful future, um, and I think I'm, we're, we're, we are in in some ways starting to see that um, in the world and in the way in which, as I say, the the sort of uh, the, the 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 simplistic humanistic versions of God that have led to the the irreconcilable um, absolutisms. That have you know just absolutely engulfed the world in in religious conflicts are starting to become are starting to feel more and more vacuous, starting to feel less satisfying. Um, this is a time. This is one of those moments where I think a new kind of spirituality is arising. And um, you know what I'm just trying to do is 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 try to give it a name, give it a give it some substance, help people figure out that you can you can actually be a spiritual person. You can have a deep, meaningful spiritual life um, by dehumanizing God, by thinking of God, you know, in these pantheistic terms, by removing. Uh, the limitations on God that specific religions put on God, and by simply expanding your ideas about the divine um, in these um, universal ways. Well, I think that is a a great place to wrap up our conversation. Thank you so much. Um, The book is fascinating. Uh, I think that anyone who is curious about um, the intersection of religion and politics is going to find just I mean, that's basically what the book is about. It's a history of the intersection of religion and politics without ever getting up to this moment. Although there's obviously like places where this perspective comes in handy, like looking at today's newspaper. That's the, uh, that's going to be the uh, the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, and I'll talk to you when that comes out. Thank you so much. Take care. And that was Reza Aslan, and I am still Anna Marie Cox. Be sure to check out With Friends Like These, drops every Friday. And of course, next week, also a new Crooked Conversation. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem 
our detour.